I commend you for your generous giving to the congregation. This building was used over the weekend, or has been and will be quite a bit. On Friday night, we hosted on our property the Navigators. They were here for an end-of-the-semester event. And yesterday, the wrestlers from the Millersville University uh, wrestling team had their banquet downstairs in the fellowship hall. And then this afternoon, FCA is going to use our property for an end-of-the-year event. So uh, the money that you give buys gas and services our lawnmower and and, uh, pays to keep the building clean and looking nice. And we have been able to use it to serve these uh, organizations uh, in our community, and I, so I commend you for your generous support of the congregation. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. 2 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, I'm going to introduce it a little bit while you're turning there. We're almost finished with this book. We have one more passage of Scripture that we will cover, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, and then we'll be finished with this. Uh, you'll notice when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 22 that it is a psalm. This is a psalm of David uh, that is actually also included in the book of Psalms. It's number 18. So Psalm 18 and 2 Samuel chapter 22 are virtually identical. The only difference is between the two. There's a few editing things. Psalm 18 is a little bit more designed for congregational singing than Psalm 22, uh, uh, 2 Samuel 22 is. And in Psalm, Psalm 18 is long. Do you remember there have been times that we have talked about Uh, In the book of Samuel, some of the passages of Scripture are long. So this morning we're going to read a long passage of Scripture. Psalm 18 is the third longest psalm, and this is one of the longest chapters in 2 Samuel, uh, the book of 2 Samuel. Um, Now it ends, this is the end of the the book, and um, it is not uncommon in the Old Testament for long narratives to end with songs. Deuteronomy ends with the song of Moses. Genesis ends with the song of Jacob, and Samuel here ends with the song of David. And in Samuel in particular, we have this match kind of between Hannah's song at the beginning and David's song at the end. Actually, the two of them are quite parallel. Um, Hannah, you could describe this, Hannah's song is about promises made, and David's song is about promises kept, and that's how they balance one another. I'm not going to say anything more about that today, but it would be good you could read them both and see common themes. Well, let's uh, read this, shall we? 2 Samuel chapter 22, starting in verse 1. David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hands of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold my refuge and my savior from violent people. You save me. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My ears came, my cry came to his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. 
They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath from his nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them low. You, Lord, are my lamp. The Lord turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God beside the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back until they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them to the Lord. But he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I do not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. 
You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Uh, Let's start by talking this morning about secrets. Um, Not secrets in the sense of whispered confidential things that you tell other people, but secrets in the sense that we use the phrase, the secrets of my success. Uh, We use that phrase a lot. So let's imagine somebody brings uh, chocolate chip cookies to a church potluck and they are delicious. And you, you go to them and you say, those cookies are great. Please tell me the secret. What's your secret to making great chocolate chip cookies? Or um, somebody has a, a, a couple celebrates their 50th wedding anniversary and one of the questions we want to ask, what's the secret to this long marriage that you've had? Tell me, tell me how you did it. Answers to that question can be more or, or less helpful, right? So every now and then the news will feature a, a person who has their 107th birthday. Right? This guy's lived to be 107 years old and the news shows up at his birthday party and they put a camera in his face and they say, how'd you do it? And that old coot looks in the camera and he says, I have fried chicken every morning for breakfast. I smoke two packs of cigarettes every day and drink half a bottle of brandy for dinner. Do that every day and you'll live a long life. And you think, that can't be right. That just cannot be the right answer. So here before us in this psalm is the secret, if that's even the right word, the the secret behind David's life as Israel's most revered king. Uh, How did David's life, how did his reign work out the way it did? And the answer to that question in brief is because of his relationship with God. God protected him and provided for him, and David followed him faithfully. I think its chief usefulness, as we pick it up this morning, is it helps us move in David's direction. Uh, I I know that we live, David and I, we live in different eras, and we have different opportunities and different roles to play in different challenges, but I want to be in the same traffic flow that David's in. I want to be able to, at the end of my life, or at the end of um, any episode in my life, at the end of my work at Grace, or at the end of my my parenting years, I want to be able to rejoice like this. I want to be able to see God at work like this. I want to be with David on this same path. So the question I have is, what does it take to get there? to move with David in the same direction. It's not impossible, even though David had this relationship with God that, that I don't, he as, as, David's anoint, as, as God's anointed king, I don't have that sort of relationship with God or that role to play in history. But this is actually an offer for everybody. I don't know if you noticed that, but look at verse 31 again what it says. Here's the invitation for everybody to read this psalm. As for God, it says, verse 31, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields, here it is, all who take refuge in him. Anybody? Anybody here this morning who wants to take refuge in him can join David on this path. It's for all who take refuge in him. It's not an elite offer. If you're interested in it, follow along here this morning. 
what I want to do is I, I think the best way to go through this is I want to look at how David summarizes his experience. And I'm going to do that with four words, four key words that I think summarizes a long psalm. So we're going to look at it in larger chunks. I want to use these, these words to help push us in the right direction. All right. And the first word of these four that I want to talk about is the word trouble. Trouble. Alec Moitier is an Old Testament scholar. He's written about the Psalms. And he says that one of the, the, the great mistakes that we who are followers of Jesus make often is that we forget that following Jesus is a life that is filled with trouble. In fact, uh, Jesus had said to us, in this world you will have troubles. But why then is it, and I do this too, why is it then that every time something calamitous happens, we immediately think that, 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 that God is off his throne. That God's plans have fallen apart. God doesn't love me anymore. God is punishing me for something, this terrible thing that's happened to me. Why, why do we ask, immediately go there and ask questions like that? Why every time it's like it's a terrible surprise that this world is filled with trouble? Think about David's life here for a minute. This psalm here, this song mentions Saul, the introduction in verse 1. Um, he's listed separately. When God delivered David from his enemies and from Saul. Why is it di- he, Saul different? Saul treated David as an enemy, but David did not treat Saul as an enemy. That's why Saul's listed differently. Think about David's story. So after David is anointed king, Saul's king, God anoints David as king, and David becomes a member of Saul's household, a member of his bodyguard, one of his generals. And, and from one perspective, you can think about that and think, that is a great mentorship program, right? Here's the king, here's the next king, they're together. Boy, if Saul really wanted to pour his life into David, that would be awesome. It would be the best internship ever. Uh, that's not what happens, though. Saul turns on him. Saul spends years trying to kill him, chasing him. This doesn't seem right, right? Just in the wake of God making, anointing David as king, he goes into Saul's household, and then Saul turns on him, and David runs for him for years. And this, it doesn't seem right, but that's the pattern in the Bible often. God's work in, in the lives of followers of Jesus brings about opposition. Alec Moitier said, the spirit works and the flesh rises in opposition. That shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. It's entirely normal. Look at verse 5. Here's David's troubles described. Verse 5. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. It's interesting, this imagery. Uh, verse 5 is, uh, is uh, a seafaring imagery. It's nautical imagery. The Israelites were not seafaring people. To them, the ocean was a place of turmoil and chaos and danger. And and David says, the waves have come against me. And then verse 6, he uses this hunting imagery. Snares. Death was a hunter. It's it's setting traps for me everywhere. Look down at verse 18. It says, God rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes, who were too strong for me. It's interesting. David says his foes were too strong for him. Too strong for David. How strong is David? David's wiry, probably. If, if, if you can't measure him by his brute strength, we do know that David is wily. Right? He's shrewd. He's clever. 
he's, he's hard to trap. And yet David here says he is in a position where he is unable to free himself. He has an enemy that's too strong for him. Without God's intervention, David is going to be undone. He's either going to be dead or humiliated or defeated, maybe all three. This seems to be a way that God works often in the lives of his people. We, we get into situations where, that we can't handle, trouble uh, that is beyond our ability to control. Have you ever heard the expression, God doesn't give you more than you can handle? It's a crock. It's a lie. It's not true. God gives people things they can't handle all the time. It's the cross-section where God does some of his greatest work. In a sense, actually, uh, you know, we're a little further down the road, you can't become a Christian until you reach the point of admitting that you have a problem that you can't handle. You, you can't become a Christian the Bible says that we are all sinners, all of us, by nature and by choice. We're in rebellion against God, and there is nothing that we can do about it. We are broken people. We have done the breaking. And you can't become a Christian unless you acknowledge that you have a problem, namely sin, that you cannot solve yourself. The Gospels tell us about a young man who came to Jesus one day, and he approached Jesus. You know this story probably. He said to him, uh, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Not a terrible question, it's poorly phrased, but um, Jesus answers and mentions the Ten Commandments in part in his answer. And the man said, oh, <laughs> I've done all those. <laughs> I, I, I have honored my father and mother. I haven't lied. I haven't stolen. I, I haven't taken the Lord's name in vain. I, I really, I think I measure up to all ten of those standards. Oh, Jesus said, great. There's only one more thing you've got to do. Go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Now, why did Jesus give that advice? Uh, Jesus met in his life a fair number of very wealthy people and this is the only person that he ever told to do that. It's the only person he ever said, go sell. Why would Jesus tell him that or make this a requirement for coming to follow him? I think he did it because he was trying to show this young man that he wasn't as obedient to the Ten Commandments as he thought he was. He wasn't as upright. He's not as good, not as innocent. His basic problem Jesus is pointing out to him is uh, greed, that he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. When you recoil from the Bible's description of broken human beings, when you read what it says about us, and the, the, the way that we're born, the way we come into this world, this enmity with God, no one likes that. No one revels in being called a guilty sinner. Nobody likes that. But, but if, when you protest by saying, well, I'm not really that bad, or I'm not really bad, as bad as this person, I wonder if you're being like that young man. If there's things about you that you don't know, things about yourself that you cannot see, who do you think is a better interpreter and analyzer of the condition of your heart? You or the God who made you? Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse says, I the Lord, I the Lord know the heart. I understand it. You know, there's one thing that I know about everybody in this room. 
I know that you are worse off than you are naturally inclined to think you are. God puts people in situations all the time where without him, you could not survive. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've already admitted that when you became a Christian in the first place. And now here you are, perhaps in another situation that God has put you in where without him, you will be undone. God does that all the time to people, his followers. You should ask people in our church who have a little wear on their tires about this. Ask a few of them who've been around the block a few times. I mean the old people. Ask them. <laughs> ask them if in the number of years they have followed Jesus, if God has put them in places they did not feel able to handle and how God carried them through. So trouble. Trouble here is the first word. The second word that we're going to look at here in this psalm is the word rescue. Rescue. The transition between trouble and rescue is in verse 7. In my distress I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. And in verses 8 through 16 there is a description of God um, that, it, it, that God comes in the back of a storm. This is a description of a storm. God comes through the storm, in the storm. His coming is the storm. This happens uh, quite a bit in the Bible. Look at verse uh, 8. We'll read a couple of these verses again. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because God was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim, not cute little chubby baby angels. Um, cherubim in the Bible are beasts. Uh, he's riding these beasts. They're his, his steed. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his ca- canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. And then verse 13 mentions lightning and verse 14 mentions thunder. Verse 15 mentions thunder again, uh, lightning again. Verse 16, the valleys of the sea were exposed. Earthquakes. On it goes here. Earthquakes, lightning, uh, wind, storm clouds. This is how God is pictured as coming. Now, that helps us. By using this imagery, David is trying to tell us about the power of God. We try to control the weather. We're foolish enough to think that we can control the weather. But the weather is uncontrollable. We wish we could predict the weather better than we can. Uh, in the fall of 2017, when Hurricane uh, Irene was headed toward Florida, 59,000 Floridians agreed to participate in a campaign where they would put fans outside their house and have them blowing to the east. And the idea was that if they could get enough Floridians with their fans blowing east, it would blow the hurricane away from... <laughs> Sorry, it would blow the hurricane away from the, the shoreline and, and protect Florida. It didn't work. So God is powerful. He's uncontrollable. He's unpredictable. Don't you wish? Huh? Don't you wish we could turn off the volcano in Hawaii? Don't you wish this week there were a hundred, at least a hundred people in India killed by a terrible dust storm that was followed by a rainstorm? It killed a hundred people. This is about God's power. 
Sometimes God does send storms like this. He literally sends storms and intervenes directly. I have another John Patton story to tell you this morning. Do you remember John Patton? I've been telling you about him for the last three weeks. John Patton was a missionary in the South Seas. The last night he was on, an, on the island of Tana, where he spent four years in life, at danger of his life, he was in his house. He had two uh, guests with him, a couple of the Mathesons, and his dog, Clutha. And in the middle of the night, Clutha barked, 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 and woke them all up. And uh, they discovered that their house had been surrounded by natives from Tana. And they, there was the house and the, a long reed fence and then the church building that he had built. And the natives set fire to the church building and the fence. And there he was in the house. And he saw the, the fire moving down the fence toward his house. And it still his house was surrounded. So John Patton said to his friend, Mr. Matheson, he said, I'm going to go out the door, you lock it immediately, and I'm going to cut the fence away from the house so the house doesn't catch on fire. So John Patton ran out the door, they locked the door, and all the natives started to rush John Patton. Kill him, kill him, kill him, they shouted. And all of a sudden, this terrible cyclone came roaring under the island. This wind that whipped off of the ocean, it blew out the fire, and then the rain came, gallons and gallons and gallons of it. It soaked everything. Nothing burned on that island for weeks because of all this rain that fell. God comes in the cloud. God comes in the wind. God comes in the rain to defend his people. So this image here is about God's power. But what's also striking in this in this image that that David uses here is that there is actually no record of an earthquake or anything like this literally happening in David's life. God used other means to rescue David. He acted indirectly and David is attributing all of these things that happened to him to God, that, that this is God at work. So David was running from Saul and the Philistines come and attack the Israelites and Saul has to go and fight the Philistines. David said, God just rescued me through the Philistines. Saul was chasing David one time and had a terrible panic, uh, stricken conscience. God's working through Saul's conscience to rescue me. And it's, it's as powerful as a great windstorm or thunder and lightning. God is, David is seeing God at work behind what you, you might merely mistake for natural means. I wonder if you have eyes to see God at work like this. The Bible wants to come as a pair of binoculars or a pair of spectacles to correct your vision so that you can see truly God at work in things you might just mistake for natural means but are really His. If you see God at work like this, I will tell you it will greatly increase your joy in life. In 1 Peter 4.10, Peter wrote, he said, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. When he, what Peter is saying, when you use the gifts that, that God has given you to serve others, you are dispensing, you are serving God's grace. Who knew that God's grace sometimes comes in the form of casseroles? Right? Do you ever think that when someone brings a meal? Oh, here's God's grace. Even if it has green beans in it. Here's God's, God's grace coming to me. Do you ever think that uh, sometimes God's power sounds exactly like a lawnmower? Sometimes God's power is manifest in chemotherapy or a surgeon's knife. 
Sometimes it's manifest in a checkbook. Do you have eyes to see that? It will greatly increase your joy because you will see God at work in many, many, many places. God rescues directly. He rescues indirectly in the Bible. Both of those things. And here's the third word that we're going to use to summarize David's experience. And the third word we're going to use is the word strength. Strength. Here's actually a form of one of the ways that God acts indirectly. Sometimes God acts to rescue us by strengthening us to, to um, uh, face the foes that we face. Look at verse 33, and, and it goes on. We won't read the whole passage, but it says, Who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? Dwayne Johnson might disagree, but who is the rock except our God? Some of you will get that later. It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. What does he do? He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. Look what God does. God God strengthens me for this battle. With God's strength, David can, can do what is necessary to defend himself. God's equipping power. It's very impressive. David can bend a bow of bronze. That's impressive. There's a lot of strength involved in that. Phillips Brooks. You recognize the name Phillips Brooks? Phillips Brooks was an Episcopalian clergyman in the 1800s. He wrote the lyrics to the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And he said this, Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger people. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Then the doing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Every day you shall wonder at the richness of life which has come to you by the grace of God. God strengthens David. Sometimes God's plans for his people often include trouble. They often include trouble. Sometimes he rescues directly. John Patton, he sends a storm. Sometimes he rescues indirectly. He sends casseroles and, and, and uh, uh, police officers and surgeons. Sometimes God strengthens us for the task at hand. The fourth word. Let's move on to the fourth word. We're going to answer one of the controversies, questions you probably have about this psalm. The fourth word is the word promise. Promise. At the center of this psalm, really at the center of this passage, David describes why he has this relationship with God, why God has rescued him and strengthened him. And I bet you have questions about this. Remember verse 21 when we read it? You probably scratched your head a little bit. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from my God. And you read that and you think to yourself, what? David? Did you forget about that incident? Your adultery and your murder? Have you forgotten about Bathsheba and Uriah? How, how, does this, how does this square with what David has done? Well, here's some ways to think through this. Uh, remember, uh, first of all, the focus, the main focus of this psalm is Saul 
and David's interaction with Saul. And it is indeed true that when David was interacting with Saul, he did honor God at every point in turn with his relationship with Saul. That's completely true. David was innocent. He had, he had, remember how, how particular he was? I will not murder God's anointed out of honor for God. I will not hurt Saul. So there's that. We'll keep that in mind. But somebody edited this book and they put this poem at the end. After Bathsheba and after Uriah. Well, these verses also help us remember, though, that, that David's fall with Bathsheba was uncharacteristic for him. It was a terrible decision, had devastating consequences. David never really recovered from his adultery and murder, but it was not typical of him. It was not normal for David. So we'll keep that in mind as we read this. We'll also keep in mind here that David is acting in covenant with God. David made atonement for his sin. How did he do it? By offering sacrifices. In the Old Testament, when someone is described as being blameless or righteous, it doesn't mean that they're innocent. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It means that they're oriented toward God. David never abandoned God. They're oriented toward God. And and when they fail, as they inevitably do, they turn to the system of sacrifices that God has prescribed for sin. That's what it means to be blameless in the Old Testament faithfully following God, and when you fail, you offer sacrifices that God has commanded. And and David is, in that regard, he has followed the law. David is in covenant with God. It is a covenant that God initiated. God, God started this work. He called David from the sheepfold, and he said to him, you will be king. And in response to that, David followed God closely, the rescue and the strength that come in 2 Samuel 22 are a function of the bond that God and David had together, that God initiated and David responded. It was in the context of the promises of God that David experienced all these benefits. There's blessing in this covenant, and there's blessing for you. Uh, well, there's warning here, too. If you will not have a covenant with God, You will not have these blessings, and in fact, you will suffer. Look at verse 27. It says, To the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. Your translation probably doesn't look like that. That, that, The word shrewd, I'm not sure it's strong enough. Wily, deceptive even. Think about this with me for a minute. When we talk about God, we talk about God's love, and we talk about God's grace, and we talk about God's holiness, His kindness. But there are people in the world who experience Him only as opponent. He is only opponent. He is shrewd. He is shrewd enemy. David met some people like that in in Samuel. Morally twisted people who according to verse 42, when they cry out to God, He will not answer them. There are benefits to be had within the promises of God, within the covenant of God. As believers today, we come to God on the basis of the new covenant. There's a lot of similarities between the old covenant and and the new covenant, but we come to God through His Son, through David's great descendant, the Lord Jesus. 
We have the same problem that David did. Sin is our great enemy. It's our great problem that we cannot solve. And Jesus is the Savior who comes. We're going to celebrate that this morning when we partake of these elements. Jesus is the Savior who comes, not in a storm, but he comes as a baby. He lived the righteous life I should have lived. He died the death I deserved to die. So I come before God, if I could paraphrase verse 21, the Lord has dealt with me according to Jesus' righteousness. According to the cleanness of his hands, he has rewarded me. We come on, the behalf, on, 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 this, on behalf of what Jesus has done for his sake. We find in him acceptance and forgiveness. He's the king. He's the ultimate king. He's the descendant of David through whom we receive all of God's benefits. Therefore, all who take refuge in him. So when the various episodes of my life come to a close, when I, when I close the door on, on certain things, I want to look back like David did. I want to look back and I'll see calamity. I'll see trouble. That's just the way it will be. Trouble will inevitably be there. I want to look back and I, will remember, I want to remember times in which I called out to God and he answered me. I want to look back and I want to see times, I want to see my determination to follow him closely. And I want to celebrate how God kept all of his promises and more. I want to say with David, the Lord lives, the Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. So here's David near the end of his story in 2 Samuel, near the end of his account. He's looking back. You're here this morning. You're looking forward on whatever you have left, however many years God gives to you. Take what David saw in retrospect and live it forward. That's the call of 2 Samuel chapter 22. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this psalm that, that touches on so many of the things that we experience here in this life as we seek to follow you. Lord, there are some who in this morning in particular are feeling the heavy press of calamity, of trouble, and when, when David says, says things like that, that death coiled around and that, that uh, torrents of destruction overwhelmed, that, uh, uh, people, they, there are people in this room who are feeling that keenly this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give them the grace to call out to you like David did with assurance that you hear us. I ask that you would give us all eyes to see how you do rescue Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. You, you use people to dispense your grace. Sometimes you strengthen us to uh, face the foes that we face. Lord, I pray that you would cultivate in us this week as well a great spirit of joy because you are the Lord who lives. You are the God who is worthy of our trust. You are worthy of our praise because of your great rescue of us. We think about that even more so this morning as we partake in the Lord's Supper. 
remembering that the Lord Jesus is the one who offered himself as our sacrifice, our substitute on the cross when he died. He rose again. You are our Savior, and we come to worship you today with great joy. Help us as we come to the table to reflect joyfully and soberly and gladly and to say uh, with the hymn writer, your faithfulness, it is great toward us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.